0: This is Episode 8 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Episode 8 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellanius, the communications specialist at the Center. In this episode, we sit down with Nicole Stell Garnett, a member of the Center's Faculty Advisory Committee and professor in the law school. We discuss the role of Catholic schools in forming strong communities, the vocation of teaching, and how the interdisciplinary collegiality that the Center helps foster on campus works to strengthen Notre Dame's authentic Catholic mission and identity. Let's lend an ear to this week's conversation. I'm here today with Nicole Stell Garnett. She is a member of the Center for Ethics and Cultures Faculty Advisory Committee, a fellow of the Institute for Educational Initiatives, the Senior Policy Advisor for the Alliance for Catholic Education, and the John P. Murphy Foundation Professor of Law at the Notre Dame Law School, where she has taught since 1999. Her teaching and research focus on property, land use, urban development, local government law, and education policy. She has written or co-written several books, including Ordering the City, Land Use, Policing, and the Restoration of Urban America in 2009, and Lost Classroom, Lost Community, Catholic School's Importance in Urban America in 2014, with fellow Notre Dame professor and CEC faculty advisor, Peg Brinig. Welcome to the podcast, Professor. Thank you. So tell us a bit about yourself. How did you come to Notre Dame?
1: It's a, a long story, but I um, I grew up in Kansas City, uh, suburban Kansas City. I'm an adult convert to Catholicism, and um, I was working and practicing in Washington, D.C., a recent convert actually at the time. Um, my husband was clerking for the chief justice at the time, and, um, and I was practicing law at a small nonprofit there in D.C. Anyway, he met uh, some folks at Notre Dame who liked him and were interested in interviewing him. And they asked, would you like to come out for an interview? This is not how it's done anymore. But anyway, they (laughs) said, would you like to come out for an interview? And he said, well, I have this wife. She has a clerkship coming up, so I really am not in a position to move for the next couple of years. And they said nicely, "Okay." And then they got back to him and said, well, she can interview, too. So we both came out here and fell in love with the place. Um, We were grateful that we were hired to teach here. And um, so I guess I I like to say that we're here because of the Holy Spirit because it was all providence that led us to being here. We weren't necessarily looking to join the teacher market at the time that it happened and um, Notre Dame sort of found us.
0: You were preparing to do a clerkship yourself at the time? Uh, yeah, I clerked clerk? for
1: Justice Thomas. So I, okay. I clerked on the Eighth Circuit for a judge named uh, Morris Arnold, mm-hmm. Buzz Arnold, and it um, was in a great year. My husband clerked for his brother. They were both uh, Court of Appeals judges in Little Rock, Arkansas. So we had a great year together, our first year of marriage in Little Rock, clerking for the Arnold Brothers. And then um, we moved to D.C. so my husband, could, Rick, could clerk for the um, Chief Justice, the late Chief Justice Rehnquist. Mm-hmm. And um, the year he was clerking, I was hired to clerk for Justice Thomas. Okay. So I clerked for Justice Thomas in 98 um, to 99. Wonderful.
0: Now you're here, you're a member of the Center's Faculty Advisory Committee. Uh, how did you get involved with the CEC?
1: Well, actually, really early on, Rick and I um, admired the work of the CEC. We've been here since 1999, Um, and we were attracted by the annual conference. We got to know Dave um, pretty well, the former director. Um, We used to go to this little coffee shop called Lula's, and um, it's now closed, but (laughs) we had just one child at the time. Now we have four, but we would take Maggie, who was then about a year, year and a half, Um, and we would have coffee with – often Dave Solomon would be there. So we would sort of hang out with Dave, and he started roping us in to moderating panels at the annual conference and other things. So I guess – I mean we have been actively involved in the work of the center, um, at least at some level, probably since 2000 or 2001. So
0: quite early. Quite
1: a while, very early on.
0: How do you see the center contributing to the intellectual life on campus and, and engaging in the wider public square?
1: Well, I just think the work of the center is really important for what happens on campus. Um I think that the the annual conference is terrific. It's just sort of a it's a great opportunity for people to come together and talk about sort of ideas within the the frame of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Um just the combination of really senior leading lights and junior people um, is really terrific. And I've I've been honored to be a part of – I've been on panels and I've moderated many panels and it's always just a lot of energy. So I think that's kind of a highlight of the year for a lot of people. And, and they're not just at Notre Dame, but in in a particular way outside of Notre Dame. I think it's a highlight of the year for a lot of scholars to be able to come to Notre Dame and be a part of the, the annual conference. Um, now, at Notre Dame – um, I think the work that the center does with students is really critical. So the Soren Fellows Program, uh, we've participated in the Soren Supper Club. Yeah. Our daughter Maggie, who will be a freshman at Notre Dame next year, we're hoping she can be a Soren Fellow. I'm just putting in a plug right now. <laughs> Very good. We've had friends who have had kids who are Soren Fellows, and just have really contributed. It's really been great for them to be a part of the the work of the center. Um, the 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 bread of life dinner has been, I know for a lot of undergraduate students, just really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, But for the faculty also, I mean, the speakers that the center is able to bring in, the debate um, that the center is able to foster, has, I think is, is great. It's really um, an energizing thing for us here at Notre Dame.
0: What are you teaching this semester? Because you're here in the law school, so what is it that uh, – what are you going to be imparting to the next <laughs> generation of – Lawmakers.
1: Well, last year I taught – last semester I taught education law, which is a, a blast. Mm-hmm. Um, I love teaching that class, it's, um, especially because I often have a lot of former teachers in my class. So we can really have experience just yeah. dealing with some, some of these really important legal issues facing uh, teachers. This semester I teach property law, which is a first-year required class. And I teach a class on state constitutional law, which is only my second time teaching the class. And that's a lot of fun. It's sort of a comparative law class that addresses ways that states deal with the same problem often quite differently. Mm -hmm. So different states have different rules for search and seizure, or different states have different rules for um, property rights, whether or not the attorney general is elected. I mean, it's all kinds of different. So it's sort of a comparative law class. Students and I had a blast last year. So I'm looking forward to that this year as well.
0: Have you ever seen someone want to move to another state after that class?
1: (laughs) No. At the end of the semester last year, though, we learned so much about America through this class because uh, state law is often kind of invisible to the students. Um, Federal law is important. Constitutional law, we all think of it as sort of a uniform thing. We learned so much about how different states did things differently, and some of them seem a little nutty, (laughs) that we all agreed that it was amazing that the republic had survived this long.
0: (laughs) Well, a lot of your work, as you mentioned, is kind of focused on working to expand access to high quality schools for the children who need the most. How did you get interested in educational policy?
1: Um, well, so when I was an undergraduate, i've always been a kind of a bleeding heart. <laughs> Bleeding heart conservative, I guess. And um, when I was an undergraduate, I saw a talk by a woman named Polly Williams. Um, Polly Williams is a a state legislature – was a state legislator in um, Wisconsin and African-American woman who had been instrumental in getting the first voucher program passed in the state of Wisconsin. And I was super captivated by this idea of parental choice. Um, As it turned out, after my clerkship, I was able to go work for a nonprofit that was litigating the early voucher cases. So the early cases challenging parental choice focused on the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution and claimed that um, allowing children to use public funds to go to a religious school would violate the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, sometimes called the separation of church and state, although those words do not appear in the Constitution. And we should not use them, but um, the uh, the cases were they literally had just been filed the day I started, so I was involved in the first voucher case, the Milwaukee case, uh, which the the par- I, we represented parents who had kids in the program who wanted to help the state defend the program. So we ultimately won that in the um, in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, soon after that victory, I left and went to a clerk on the Supreme Court. A couple years later, the Institute for Justice and um, others brought a case from Cleveland to the Supreme Court, and that was the case called Zellman, which held that it didn't violate the Establishment Clause to give parents the option of using some public funds to send their kids to the school of their choice, even if that school was religious. So I've just like – it's in my blood. So I've always been an advocate for parental choice. I've always – both on religious liberty grounds, but also just because I I really came to believe that you know parents – First and best educators of their child. No one size fits all. Um, often, our urban public schools fail poor kids. But even when they don't, it really should be the parents. The parent knows what's best for the kid. So um, I brought that passion with me to Notre Dame. I didn't actually really get involved in education at Notre Dame for several years. In two thousand and six, um, the bishops asked Catholic higher education to consider the how, ways that Catholic higher ed could help. K-12 Catholic schools, and it is an invitation to all higher ed, and Father Jenkins accepted that invitation and asked Father Scully, who started ACE here at Notre Dame, to have a task force on K-12 education, Catholic education in the United States, and Rick and I were both on that task force. Um, We worked on a, a subcommittee on public funding, and since then, I've become more and more involved in the work of the Institute for Educational Initiatives and ACE. Um, for the last, what is it, 2017? Eight or nine years now, I've been... It's 18 now. 18, right, (laughs) 18. So for the last, gosh, almost probably 10 years, I have been um, kind of part of the senior leadership of ACE here at Notre Dame, focused in particular on providing advice about parental choice, both to ACE and to our schools, but also to the the bishops. Um, Most recently, um, I was asked to be... um, a consultant. There are no members of USCCB member except for bishops on USCCB committees, but I am a consultant on the education committee. Um, so I've just sort of this has been an important part of my vocation as a teacher and a scholar.
0: Well, that kind of leads to the to the next question: How do Catholic schools, both in the primary secondary school system as well as at the college and university level? How do they contribute to the formation and preservation of communities and our communal life?
1: Right. So I, I guess I'd speak mostly about K-12 education. As I, I say when I speak to bishops about this, um, as a Catholic convert, I'm a public school kid. And um, I lear- have learned a lot about uh, Catholic schools through living life as a Catholic school mom. Um, this year, our oldest child, Maggie, will graduate from, Notre- uh, from St. Joe High School after 13 years in Catholic education. Um, she'll come to Notre Dame in the fall, and our baby will start St. Joe grade school. So if I do the math right, um, I will be a St. Joe parent for 29 consecutive years. Um, but 13 years in,
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I've so learned... Not quite a th-
1: yeah. <laughs> so I, my expertise is clearly in K-12. to um, I think contributing in many ways. First, I would just say is that Um, There's a lot of social science research that suggests that Catholic schools are really one of the most important anti-poverty devices that has ever existed in the the United States. They've done more to lift more out of poverty than almost any institution. Um, Immigrants, uh, disadvantaged students, minorities, it's quite clear that the more disadvantaged a kid is, the more benefit there is from having a Catholic education. Um, and, And that contributes in immense ways to the common good. Um, I think that um, my I – I wrote a book a few years ago, as you mentioned, with my colleague Peg Brinnig about um, the effects we, – we sought to measure the effects of um, closing Catholic schools on urban neighborhoods in Chicago and Philadelphia. And what we found is that when Catholic schools close, urban communities become more dangerous and more disorderly and um, they're – Social capital, the kind of trust among neighbors, the uh, dependence upon neighbors, the cohesion of the neighborhood falls apart. Um, we don't really know why that is, although we we suspect that the Catholic school is some in various ways a glue and a really important social institution, and that suggests that the benefits of the Catholic schools aren't just on the kids and teachers in the building, mm-hmm. but there's actually spillovers to the community around the building. Um, so you know the great schools they great – they're great, they're great um, community institutions. Uh, we know that as far as the church goes, uh, kids who go to Catholic schools are more likely to remain faithful, more likely to give more, to go to mass on Sunday, more likely to have religious vocations. That doesn't mean that kids that don't go to Catholic schools can't have all those things, but there's plenty of evidence that Catholic schools are particularly good at forming Catholics. Um but my experience as a mom, my 13 years, will say I, I never really understood a Catholic school until I had – I lived a Catholic school with my kids. And it's – you know, it is really a special place. It's a place where, you know, imperfectly often that this community tries to integrate faith and reason and tries to live a Christian life and build a Christian community and sees their uh, mission as we say it. As Basil Moreau says, or our school, the Holy Cross School says, uh, educate the heart and mind mm-hmm. um, to form and not just teach um, young people. And, and so I think that it that has been so important for my family to have that for our children, that formation. Um, I love that at our Catholic school, the priests walk around and they come and read books to the preschoolers and they – give out candy canes to the third graders and dress up as St. Nicholas and other things. Um, celebrate the sacraments, bottling the joy of vocation. So I think it's so important for families. But you know, in our society, which so often is atomized and so often sees religion as something that is private, um, that is something that you should do, but quietly – you can do if you want to, but privately – on Sundays, preferably only, and if you're a Protestant, former Protestant like me on Wednesday nights, um, <laughs> the, I think it's really important for our institutions to have our, – our culture to have these countercultural institutions that really are still trying to say that faith and reason are not separate and that um, religion is is a communal thing that is shared in communities and not just at worship. Um, that, I think, is some, a gift that Catholic schools give all of our society.
0: Finally, if I can ask kind of a personal question <laughs> mm-hmm. that kind of builds on that is how does your faith impact your work as a professor of law?
1: It certainly affects the way I view my job as a teacher. I, I view my job as a I, – I, I think this is a vocation – I've, I'm a wife and a mother first. I'm a, those are my vocations. But um, if I didn't think that this was an important vocation, I, I really w- probably wouldn't do it. I mean it's important to me to form young people in the same way that my kids get formed in Catholic schools. I'm trying to form uh, young people um, and, and heart and mind. Um, and so it, it affects my relationships and my mentoring relationships with students, um, the way that I try to help them not just like get jobs, but through some serious, often serious personal problems or crises in their families, really serious um, health issues. I've had students with parents, literally, who have died, parents who have gone to prison, children who have died, and to be able to be here in a Christian community at Notre Dame and to be able to be present as a, as a faithful person to my students, including students who may not even have faith of their own. That is really, I think... The most important way of my faith impacts what I do. It affects my relationship with my colleagues in the same way. Um, we have a really great community here at Notre Dame. Um, it affects the way I teach. It affects even how I – what I write. Had I not been at Notre Dame and not been a Catholic, I wouldn't have written a book about Catholic schools and <laughs> urban neighborhoods. And Peg Brennigan and I never would have come up with this – what everyone thought was a crazy idea for a book, which worked out fine. Um, <laughs> But it's also been important to me as a Catholic to be a part of Notre Dame more broadly and in order to think about how we can be live up to our ideals as a Catholic institution. It's not easy. It's hard work. But i am really been grateful that my faith has been able to – I've been a person of faith in an institution committed to faith. Sometimes Notre Dame might stumble, but I do think that – It really is an institution that strives to be distinct and have its faith inform its work as a university. Um, And I think that's a a really important thing. And so that has been a great – all the other stuff I suspect would have been the same in another school except for the way that my – being a Catholic institution has informed my scholarship, the way that being in a Catholic institution has enabled me to feel like I'm contributing to to the church's mission in the world.
0: I often look at outside at days like today with this ice-cold weather and, you know, going to be like this for the next couple of months. And I think of Notre Dame as being a vocation to work here. You know, nobody chooses to come to South Bend, Indiana, you know, due to the weather and
1: things <laughs> like that. I know. I, sometimes they say the Holy Cross priests were on their way to the gold rush in California and they just sort of got – they stopped for the winter and they couldn't – and never melted. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean it is – I do think Notre Dame is a – it is a vocation um, and uh, many of the best people here, committed people here, uh, and not just in the law school but in the university, see it as a vocation. Um, and vocation is hard work but it's worthwhile um, because Notre Dame really is really a – the one great university that also strives to be Catholic in an authentic way – and it's a place where we can have really deep conversations about what it means to be a Catholic institution, which uh, is really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's certainly not one opinion on what that means, but it's a great thing. So I do think it's a vocation. It helps us um, tell the, our story to faculty and students that we're trying to recruit. It mm-hmm. makes it a special place because it's full of special people who often come here for that reason.
0: Yeah. And that recruiting only helps, helps that snowball grow. You know, when we can tell our story and say you can come and be part of these conversations and contribute to this and we want you here. And that then helps those awesome people show up and that – like you say, the ball just continues to
1: grow. Yeah. And it's often – you know, it's interesting. So many of the people that come here for the mission aren't Catholic. Yeah they're Orthodox Jews or evangelical Christians, but we are able to offer the distinct and distinct environment that really enables us to, and they enrich our community tremendously, but it's a place that, you know, great people keep coming and it's really a beautiful community for that reason. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, one thing I've also thought about the mission over the years, I've been here a long time, 18 years, but, I think the mission is also helps foster interdisciplinary friendships and relationships because it's not just the law school or the Center for Ethics and Culture or the Theology Department that are trying to do this distinctive thing, but we're all trying to do it together.
0: Well, Nicole Stell garnett thank you very much for the conversation. Thank you. To Professor Garnett for a great conversation. You can learn more about the Center for Ethics and Culture by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu. You can subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast, which is released every other Thursday during the academic year, by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu/slash podcast. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to tell your friends. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.